Hey, Scott here. Thanks for listening to the Flyover Country podcast. I am very excited this week with our guest, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina joins us. He is incredibly interesting. His life story, really inspirational, not just for Republicans or conservatives, but really for all Americans. When you consider how his childhood and his family's story drove him to achieve in school, drove him to get into public service, and now drives him to push for issues like school choice and tax reform. It is an incredibly inspiring life story. Senator Scott, while in the Senate, took the lead on key reforms like cutting taxes for middle-class families and on opportunity zones. We talked about how we're now getting the first data from the 2017 tax bill, and the results are clear. What he did in writing that bill is helping everyday Americans. We also talk about the senator's optimism on issues like police reform and why he believes that his optimistic approach to politics is absolutely the one the Republicans need to win back the White House in 2024. This week on Flyover Country, a conversation with South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. All right, we're here on the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings, and it is my honor to welcome to the show today uh, someone who I think is one of the most impressive and unifying voices in American politics today. It is South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Senator Scott, thanks for being with us. Scott, thanks for having me. It's good to hear uh, that very nice introduction. Appreciate that. And God bless uh, your efforts in, in keeping the truth in focus for our nation. That's really important. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to bring up uh, some uh, of your interactions with the media uh, and, uh, and how they've treated you over your course of your career. But where I want to start is uh, with a, con- a concept. And as I think about the way you uh, operate in politics, I think about you as one of the most optimistic voices in our politics. You know, we we often hear of people talking about anger and division and divisiveness and polarization. And these words have sort of, you know, we're numb to these words now. But there are people out there, chiefly you, who are, I think, driving optimism in our politics. And so I want to start with your thoughts. What is a more powerful force in politics? Is it, is it anger or is it optimism? I think uh, without any question, if you think about the two sides of that coin, uh, negativity or positivity, there's without any question, we are better together and we are frankly better when we lean into what we have in common. And that leads us to an optimistic view of the future. Unfortunately, what we found out to be true in politics today is that you can easily monetize conflict. It is easier to talk about fear and division than it is hope and opportunity. That takes us down a rabbit hole that leads us all worse off as a nation. And frankly, politicians, (laughs) this is, I know you know this, Scott, but I'm going to tell you anyways. We don't create momentum. We aren't that smart. We aren't that good. The truth is, Typically, we ride momentum. So wherever the country's heading, we want to get credit for it. I think that's a bad approach to politics. 
What we should focus on is what is the core conviction of our nation? We are a nation that has fought against ourselves to set captives free. We are a nation that comes back to the drawing board to figure out a better path for those living in poverty. We are a nation that believes in redemption and second chances. I'm here having a conversation with you because I live in a state, South Carolina, where I had a chance to make a first impression a second time. That is rare on earth, but it's in abundance in our nation. And if we were to lean into our better angels, we'd find better options and better outcomes. But unfortunately, when you eliminate actual civility in the public forum where we can debate and disagree on some of the most important key issues of our future, you relegate yourself to one or two sides, either a negative approach to living and to politics or the rare approach of positivity and seeing a future that is built together. I believe common sense leads to common ground, and that's why I'm an optimist. You raised a phrase that I want to I want to go back to, and that's what are the core convictions of our nation? And yes. where do those core convictions come from? And I think there is a troubling movement uh, among some people in our politics today to move us away from those convictions and to move us away from the people who created those convictions yes. and put them down on paper in the first place. The founding fathers, we see their statues being torn down. We see their memories being marginalized and we see them being, frankly, defamed. Uh, by a lot yes. of people in our politics. I was wondering uh, what you think about that. I I'm personally surprised. I never thought we'd see a day where Thomas Jefferson can't stand, you know, in, in the city of New York or Teddy Roosevelt. But here we are. Does, does this alarm you that the, oh, the yes. left is, is going down this rabbit hole? Yeah. And, and Scott, purging history because you don't like parts of it is a bad idea. And frankly, when Abraham Lincoln is being canceled in Illinois, someone should say, can a brother get a break? Because this is a really bad idea for all of America. Uh, here's what we should remember about each of us. None of us wants to be judged on our worst day. So thinking about that from a political perspective, yeah, you can look through the history of our nation and some of our founding fathers and, and those who've led and say, did they have any challenges in their lives? The answer is we all have challenges in our lives. But the weight of their work is why we have statues to people most often. Uh, if we go back and use a 2021 definition of progress in 1865 or 1965, we come to different conclusions. Here's what I believe. I believe that statues to folks that maybe even I disagree with or find some of their behavior to be uh, unacceptable. That is a lesson, that's an opportunity to have a conversation and to learn something. Uh, we do that throughout South Carolina all the time. I don't think that removing a statue makes me better or provides higher quality education or makes my economic fortune any better. I do believe that having a chance to converse about the important figures of our past gives me a chance to see into the future. If I were to suggest anything in the statue conversation, I would say let's erect more statues honoring the diversity of those who contributed to our country. Let's not take something down, but let's build something up. And if we do that, then we'll have a conversation about some of the brilliant minds in our country, like Frederick Douglass. We'll have a conversation about George Washington Carver. We'll have a conversation about some of the most profound Americans that have yet to be represented or, or talked about in a long time. And let me say it this way. 
We should spend more time in the windshield of our cars than we do the rear view view mirror in our cars. We're spending so much time looking back, you're guaranteeing a crash in the future. But if you spend more time looking forward, you can learn from the past. Let me me bring up uh, a word you you just used there, converse, conversation, the concept that, hey, maybe as Americans, we ought to talk and listen to each other from time to time. I really think you're you're sort of model this behavior. Uh, in Washington, the Senate is supposed to be the greatest deliberative body in the world, and I and I think that underneath the word deliberate is talk and converse and yes. listen. And and I want to thank you for for modeling that because I think it's a it's a good model for anyone in any party. I, I wanted to ask you who else in Washington on this front because I think there is a is a tendency to believe that it's all bad that all politics all public you know. This is all bad right now, but I don't think that's true because I see what you yes. do and I see what others do. Who else, and, and even some Democrats, I assume, you find also believe in this concept, yes? Yeah, without any question, uh, Scott. One of the things that I've said several times is that we have to agree to disagree without being disagreeable so that the public forum and the civility in the public forum allows us to debate the very uh, big topics or the most important topics of our future. And people who want to come to the table and have a conversation in Washington on both sides of the aisle, I'll start with James Langford. James Langford and I came up with a, a concept called Solution Sundays. So you're literally on Sunday afternoon after church, having a conversation with people who are not like you. They don't look like you. They may not worship like you, and they probably don't vote like you. But the importance of listening to people who aren't like you is one of the best ways to be educated and informed. And maybe you even find your own blind spots in the middle of that conversation. Uh, Another person who who I thought did that really well was Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, She's no longer in, in Washington, but she was a Democrat, uh, a centrist, uh, a Hindu who didn't believe like me, who didn't vote like me, but we had a great relationship because it was founded upon the basic concept of trust. I could trust what she said and she could defend her belief system even though I disagreed with it. So I, I loved having conversations with her because we would debate issues that were really important, but we would walk away with a mutual respect. Chris Coons is another person who I find in that category as well. We, we don't see the same world sometimes, but we're going to live in it together anyways. And so it gives us a chance to work together, to, to fight against each other on issues, but not fight against who we are as individuals. We both have co-chaired the uh, Senate prayer breakfast, and that gave us common ground to stand on. And with that common value system, we were able to tackle issues, even even though he came to a liberal conclusion too often from my perspective, and I consistently come to something that's too conservative from his perspective, but at least we see the same problems. Uh, I'd say Marco Rubio has done a pretty good job in that area as well. And uh, Angus King has been someone who I've had great conversations with as well. Uh, And then of course, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are in the news a lot, but both do a really good job of listening. And unfortunately for them, the civility that I was talking about is not being afforded to them by their critics. And that says so much about their critics and says little about Joe and Kirsten. They're doing uh, so-called the Lord's work, trying to understand the future of this nation and then working back to the issues of today. 
Yeah, I, I find what happens to them when they're out in public to be extremely oh. troubling. I mean, when you're following people into a bathroom with a camera, you know, you're following them to where they live. You're standing on their front lawn. And it's not Republicans who are harassing these Democrats. It's Democrats. It's, it's Democrats. And, yes. uh, and, and, and I think the lack of tolerance for diversity of thought within their own party tells us a lot about how they want to uh, think about Republicans as well, because they won't even tolerate their own people. They're certainly not going to tolerate a conservative. 100% Scott. And here's the funny thing. I, I, not funny, but this is a sad thing. I was talking to Joe this, uh, this just this week and he said, Tim, I need a police escort to get into my home. Mm. I need a police escort to get out of my home. And I, I just, I, I just say that, that that would be hard to, to, to do in South Carolina. It, it would be really hard for me to have to have a police escort to get into my house uh, because people are sitting in the lawn and, and, and camping out in your backyard and just you can't get down your street to yeah. get home because they are offended by your position on an issue. And frankly, in, in West Virginia, where Joe lives, the truth is that three quarters, if not 80 percent of the folks working in the energy industry appreciated stance. Yeah. So it's the minority voice, even within his own state, uh, that pretends to be the majority in his party that's speaking out vehemently against him. Th th those are issues that should be settled uh, in Congress uh, at the debate table, so to speak, not in your lawn, not on your front lawn. That, that's just reprehensible behavior by those folks who say they want us all to learn to be tolerant, Scott. Yeah. I'm not sure what the definition of tolerance is from those folks, but, but they're not reflecting it in their behavior. No, they they really aren't, and uh, God bless uh, Mansion and Cinema and their willingness to to stand up to some of those bullies because that's absolutely that's bullies. What they that's are. a good word. Let me uh, let me move on to a couple of issues where you've been yes, uh, identified and and um, worked on and and sort of modeled that working across the aisle behavior. One, of course, is on police reform. You had the most talked about police reform bill. You've uh, worked very diligently, I think, with the left to try to come up with something. Uh, you know, you had a bill that uh, created reporting requirements on the use of deadly force. Um, you had a new training for officers. I mean, you hit on what I think people want, which is accountability, but not defunding the police. They want police, exactly. they want them to be better trained and they want them to be accountable. This obviously didn't pan out yet, no. although I think you're you're hopeful on it. Uh, was curious to know where you think the issue stands today and why is it that um why is it that an agreement hasn't been reached when we've seen so many points in our news cycles that seems to indicate people people kind of want something to happen here? Well, Scott, really, really good question. Thank you for asking. And I'll say on police reform, this is an issue whose time has come. Uh, on the left and the right, uh, out in the real world, people agree. Uh, let me give you a couple of statistics that I think actually matter on this issue. Eighty percent or more of African-Americans want the same level of policing or more policing in their neighborhoods. Now, that should be informative to the left. But it, but it's yes. not. Uh, think about the results of the Minneapolis uh, ballot initiative. Fifty six percent of the folks said 
we're not getting rid of our police departments. I actually brought African-American leaders together with then Attorney General Barr in South Carolina to have a conversation about defunding the police and issues around police reform. Uh, 99% of the people in the room said defunding the police is a terrible idea. So if you're listening to the actual people who represent the neighborhoods that have been marginalized for far too long. If you're listening to the residents themselves, the one thing you walk away with is we want reform, but we want police. And so the things that you talked about, the, the ability to have more information about stops, and things that happen in the interaction, good thing. We, we were able to find agreement on chokeholds. We were able to have agreement on de-escalation training and the duty to intervene. We, we were in the same spot on uh, PTSD assistance for our police officers who sometimes are just suffering from way too much emotional challenges because of the jobs that they're doing. We, we had agreement on mental health co-responders. We didn't have agreement on the 11 sections of the bill that they wanted to either limit funding or defund the police. We right. did not agree on federalizing local police. These are two pillars of the left. And the reason why is because the liberal elite do not live in the neighborhoods where policing is really important. As a kid growing up, someone broke into our home. I'm so thankful that the police showed up. They offered us assistance. They made us feel safer in our own homes after someone violated that premise. So we understand the importance of policing. I just wish the elected officials who say they represent the marginalized communities would have an ear to the ground within those communities. They would understand the sense of urgency about having the best wear the badge, but also having the police presence in the neighborhoods. So this will get done. I will sit at this table and work with anyone from anywhere at any time in order to advance policing, but not to demonize police officers. The vast majority show up to do the job as a mission and go home to their families. If we don't understand and appreciate that perspective, it's really hard to get the rest of it done. Do you think that this issue would benefit from some actual presidential leadership? Because it strikes me that if you wanted to get something done here and get the Democrats you're dealing with uh, over the finish line, it would take Joe Biden's engagement and it would take him not using the kind of incendiary rhetoric that derails this conversation. Have you talked to Joe Biden about it? And do you think he has been adequate, uh, adequately engaged on this matter? Yeah, I have not spoken to the president. Well, I have spoken to the president about this once and to the White House about it a few times. Their approach to it has been a hands off approach. Let, let, the, let the Democrats uh, in the Senate figure this out going forward. Uh, that's only left me thinking that demonizing the police is a part of the agenda, defunding the police is priority uh, one or two, and that federalizing it all is priority two or three. Uh, that approach doesn't work. If the president was to weigh in from the perspective or the vantage point of those living in communities where policing is really important, I think we'd have a different outcome. But the truth is that when you find common, common ground, it's because everybody with common sense living in communities where I grew up 
We want the police. We want their presence and we want them to treat us with respect. You can get both, by the way. And I've said this several times, but there is not a binary choice, either police officers or communities of color. It's all or none. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of the guys and the gals in blue. All right. Thank you for your words on that. I want to move on to education. Um, yes, sir. You've long been a, meter, uh, a leader in the school choice movement. And given the recent salience of education in our national politics and for the Republican Party, I thought we should talk about the fact that you've actually been one of the people in the party for a long time, long before the Virginia governor's race, arguing that the Republicans ought to make this one of our core leading edge issues. Glenn Youngkin came along and did it, and we saw the success uh, that he had with it in Virginia. I was hoping that you might reflect on the emergence of this issue for the Republican Party, your views on school choice. And we saw it work in a state level race. And I was hoping as we might get into your strategic thinking here on politics, can this be applied to the midterms in 22 and to the presidential campaign in 24 for the Republican Party? Well, Scott, the, the issue of school choice is a unifying issue again. You think about the, the polls that have been done recently. The pandemic exposed the inequality of education in a way that very few things had before. And the truth is that 70 plus percent of African-American parents, even higher within the Hispanic community, all now agree with school choice. Parental involvement is also known as common sense. And when the Democrats come out against common sense and education, it does make life a lot easier on our side of the aisle. The truth is that a good education is the closest thing to magic in America. And one of the reasons why I've been championing the cause of school choice for more than eight years now, frankly, almost 15 years, is because I know that this is the great equalizer. Too often we spend so much time on race being the primary determining factor of outcome in America. That's just not true. Education, however, is. And so when I talk about school choice, what I really am saying is if the parent has more choice, the kids have a better chance. And so choice looks like good quality public schools in the right zip codes. Choice can be charter schools or magnet schools. It can be homeschool, virtual school. It could be private school. It could be religious school. Giving the parents a cafeteria of options is in the best interest of the kid. And the final thing I'll say about the importance of the issue of education from purely an academic perspective is that the more we focus on kids in the system and not adults, the more likely we are to improve the outcome for our nation. As a political issue, we're either asleep at the wheel as Republicans or we will take the win in the Commonwealth as a sign of things to come. We should engage and lean in to an issue that adds to our numbers. A lot of issues divide. This actually adds to our numbers. People are more engaged around education. Parents are now more interested in what their kids are being taught, where they go to school, and who is teaching them than ever before. Let's make this a national debate about the outcomes of this nation and about the outcome of marginalized communities. And we win that issue, Scott. We win it hands down.
Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a, a op-ed in the New York Times today, actually, from a Democratic pollster who was expressing surprise at how interested in education suburban <laughs> voters were in Virginia. And, and I thought, why are you so surprised? We've been right. all teaching our kids at our kitchen tables for the last couple of years. We're finally hearing what's going on in these classrooms. And I think parents are tired of being told, butt out, we'll take it from here. Because Parents don't get enough credit for how involved they really do want to be in their kids' lives. And, and uh, exactly. it's arrogant, arrogant the way they're treated. Yes. Well, this is that's the beauty of America. We, we believe in individual freedom. We believe in liberty. And there's nothing more liberating to have a chance to have a voice in the education of your kids. I mean, every single family I've ever met, they all have one thing in common. They believe that the future should be better for their kids than it was for them. Every single generation of Americans want more for their children than they want for themselves. That is the beauty of our nation. It's a unifying factor, it's a unifying truth. And when we lean into those unifying truths, we build a better country, we become more competitive, and the future becomes brighter for every single zip code in this great nation. Let me um, let, let me talk about um, one other issue where I think your leadership was so vital, and that was in some of the provisions of the 2017 tax law that was passed. You, a lot of people don't know this. You wrote the individual income tax portion of that law, and you also spearheaded the opportunity zones that yes. became law. And we finally have data on the impact of the opportunity zones. Uh, from the GAO. They're working as intended, maybe better, $29 billion in investment in these zones through 2019, much higher than the estimates. There's $70 billion in the pipeline. A majority of these investments, according to the report, would not have happened if not but for the Opportunity Zone idea that you spearheaded in this. And oh, by the way, we cut taxes for people and revenues to the federal government went up. I was hoping that you might take a moment to reflect on the vindication of Tim Scott and the Republicans in cutting taxes and reforming the tax code, when you consider that Nancy Pelosi was literally saying, if they pass this, it is the apocalypse for our country. I, I think the results speak for themselves, but I thought you might want to reflect on it. Well, Scott, it's probably one of the most exciting topics I could ever talk about. It's tax reform. I believe that giving parents more of their money to make decisions for their families is also common sense. I, I think about my mom when I was rewriting the, the personal side of the tax code. I said to myself, is there a way for me to empower moms like mine today? And the answer is yes. Give them more money. Well, how do I give them more money? I, I give them more of their money because they earned it. I don't give them giveaways or, or charity that that's what, not what they want. That's disrespectful. I say, you know how to raise your kids. You know how to fund your priorities better than the government does. And so as a part of the 2017 tax reform, I was able to include in there a 70% cut and the federal tax burden for single mothers, 60% uh, plus for dual income households, and frankly, opportunity zones, as you said, is one of the reasons why in 2019, poverty hit the lowest level ever recorded. We know for sure that in 2018 and 2019, 
revenues to the treasury went up, not down with lower taxes because lower taxes is an incentive for more activity in our economy. That more activity in our economy leads to more revenues to the treasury. And at the same time, we promised, or at least we hoped that the average family would see more than $4,000 coming into their coffers as a result of keeping more of their money. This also is common sense. And what did we see? We saw about $4,400 on average per family coming back into their coffers because they were able to keep more of their hard earned money. And you couple that with opportunity zones where we saw not only billions of dollars coming into the poorest communities that happened to be majority minority, we saw something else even more important. The creativity and the innovation of the private sector descending upon the poorest parts of this nation without gentrifying those communities, creating opportunities for jobs, for, for people to walk to work, for people to be hopeful and have a level of expectation that's rising because now they see the brilliance of the American enterprise system working in a neighborhood near you. I got to say, as a kid growing up in those communities, wow, what a blessing to see America working in my hood, so to speak. Yeah, it, it's truly been vindication for, for what you, Donald Trump, the rest of the Republicans did. This tax cut bill is paying amazing dividends for this country. Yes. Uh, and what was said about it and said about all of you who were writing it at the time, well, it was lies. I mean, it was, it was made Total up lies. Uh, hateful and fear-mongering type rhetoric. And, uh, and, and we now have the results to show just how right you were. I've got one more topic and then the famous lightning round before we go. I want to just say the way you handle the media and the way you handle the way they treat you, uh, you are one of the most gracious and graceful people in Washington. When you Google Thank the you. words Tim Scott and racism, an article comes up and it says, Tim Scott makes controversial statement that America is not a racist country. Uh, it says after you said that, the term Uncle Tim trended on Twitter because of those comments. Mother Jones called you, quote, the GOP's black friend and said that he had the audacity to say America is not a racist country. You gave one of the most inspiring responses to a president's national address that I think we have ever seen, which prompted then the Washington Post to do a fact check on you, fact checking your own family life story, which you told in the speech and said you were privileged. Your family, which picked cotton, <laughs> they called you privileged. Oh, crazy. I just have to ask, and I don't bring all this up to bring up painfully stupid memories uh, 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 put thrust upon you by the media. But I just have to ask, when you see these things happen, A, why do you think it's so hateful for the media and for the left to see a black man, a black senator become a conservative or Republican? And B, how do you remain hopeful about our politics when you see the way you and other African-Americans are treated who choose to be conservatives? Well, it's, it's, it, it goes back to the comments of Joe Biden when he was running for president. He said, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. He right. said that on a black talk show host to show with to a black talk show host. So that tells me all I need to know about the left and, and the, the cronies in the media that support the philosophy that we as black people are a homogenous group of people who cannot think for ourselves. There is such diversity in the African-American community. So it's an insult when you hear that if someone says something as outrageous, although very true, 
that America is not a racist country, that it, it starts a trend on Uncle Tim. What they fail to remember, Scott, is the next morning, George Stephanopoulos asked the question of Vice President Harris and then later of President Biden at being asked the same question, is America a racist country? And they both said emphatically, no. Right. Because you have to be blind or a goose in a rainstorm to not recognize the progress in the greatest country on earth, especially on the issue of race. But what I do realize is that the mass media wants to stereotype me into a very small corner in this nation so that no other African-Americans have the courage to stand up. And not only to think for themselves, we're doing that regardless of the, the hate, but to say it out in public, to right. become a part of the true public forum where we're debating the future of this nation and to do so from the conservative side of the aisle. It is dangerous to the national narrative of who we are and what racism means and who's marginalized and who doesn't have opportunity. When I start standing out and speaking up, especially as a black guy who grew up in poverty, the first illuminate the foundation that I grew up in poverty, that I am actually a silver spoon. I had a plastic one, not a silver one. And so literally they want to eliminate that narrative first and then second to attack what I stand for. Well, we've done more good for the minority community in the last 30 years than any other four years in recent history. Think about this, and, and, and this is, these are the reasons why the media continues to attack me and, and, and other conservatives who happen to be black. Opportunity zones you talked about, criminal justice reform, making up for the bad decisions of then Senator Biden in the 1994 crime bill happened under Republican leadership through right. the First Step Act. You think about the importance of employment opportunities. We created 7 million jobs from 2016 to 2020. Two thirds of those jobs went to women, African-Americans and Hispanic. The most inclusive economy in the history of America brought to you by the Republican Party, the Great Opportunity Party. You think about bringing unemployment rates to the lowest ever recorded for African-Americans, for Hispanics, for Asians, a 70-year low for, for, for women and a 50-year low for the majority population, I believe it was, brought to you by the GOP. Think about labor force participation rate. In other words, the number of people coming back to the workforce went up, not down. So our, our unemployment rate went down, not because people were not looking for work, more people were looking for work, and yet it still went down. That's what you call opportunity. And when you produce those results, uh, you should celebrate them, but we are terrible at marketing, but we should celebrate those, those great results because it speaks to the ethos of what it means to be an American. We actually demonstrated that we can create better outcomes in every corridor of this nation. And I celebrate it and I yell it from the mountaintops because I believe the best is yet to come for the greatest nation on earth. Well, I, uh, I certainly uh, I think your optimistic message on all these issues is something every Republican ought to listen to, internalize and replicate uh, no matter where they're running. I want to wrap up with the famous lightning round yes, from this podcast because I know you got to go. Number one, short answer or one answer only. Favorite Christmas tradition growing up? 
Well, my favorite Christmas tr tradition I found about a few years ago. It's delivering presents with uh, the, the police and firefighters door to door on Christmas Day to kids who didn't get any presents. I got to tell you, if you want to have the best Christmas ever, knock on a door and let a little kid come to the door. No Christmas tree inside the house. No chance of Santa stopping by. When you do that, yeah, it'll change your world. Difference. Yeah. Uh, thinking about vacations, where's a place in the world you've not been, but it's on your bucket list? Place I have not been that's on my bucket list would be any Caribbean island. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to go to Jamaica. I'd, I'd like to go to any place where it's warm, it's sunny, and I can just hang for a little while. When you're out on the campaign trail, which you're going to be here uh, this year, what's your favorite food to grab when you're out campaigning? <sighs> I hate to admit it, but uh, I'm a big fan of animal crackers. Uh, I, I love having a little box of animal crackers as a midday snack, a late morning snack, and a late night snack. All right. All right. Uh, no animals <laughs> harmed in the production. No, no animals harmed, without <laughs> any question. All right. You're known, well known for your famous sock collection. Do you have yes, a sir. lucky or favorite pair out of that collection that you wear on special occasions? Yeah, you know, my, my first pair of, of, of hot socks was by Thomas Pink. They were hot pink socks. They are my favorites, even though they have holes in the bottom. They are still my favorite pair of socks. Do you have a hype song or a pump up song that you listen to when you're about to go make a huge speech? You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of Journey uh, back in the day. So <laughs> I listen to Journey or Motown on the way out. All right. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do when you start to look for the day's news? Where's the first place you go? First place I go for today's news is the Wall Street Journal. All right. Last question. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I'm going to ask you this way. I know you I know you won't look past 2022 and you take nothing for granted. However, yes, sir. let me ask you this. Do you believe that a message like the one that you use is what the Republican Party needs in 2024 to recapture the White House. Desperately. Tim Scott of South Carolina, U.S. Senator, you have been a great guest. It's been an honor to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Scott. God bless. Have a great day. Same to you, sir. Take care. Yes, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, Make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.